welcome to Health Hackers episode 41. I am excited to be joined for the second time by Dr. Ramani Diversula, clinical psychologist and author with supreme expertise in personality disorders and relationships. The first episode we recorded together was last year, and it focused on how to handle a narcissist, sociopath, or psychopath. That video became the most watched and most commented on episode of all time on the Health Hackers YouTube channel. And now Dr. Ramani is releasing a brand new book titled, Don't You Know Who I Am? How to Stay Sane in an Era of Narcissism, Entitlement, and Incivility. For the next half an hour, Dr. Ramani will be giving us her expert wisdom and insights into how we can handle living in a world where apparently narcissism is the new normal. Dr. Ramani, so great to speak with you again. Thank you, Gemma. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm actually really honored that I was your most seen a podcast episode I had no idea so yeah and and that line that line about narcissism being the new normal you told me that in our last interview and you pointed out that the situation was getting dangerous now for anyone who is unfamiliar with narcissism and how it is the new normal can you give us a brief overview of what you mean well, narcissism in general, and just in case somebody didn't listen to the prior or didn't see the prior episode, Gemma, let me just sort of get us on this, all of us on the same page. Narcissism is a pattern characterized by lack of empathy, entitlement, grandiosity, superficiality, validation seeking, admiration seeking, arrogance, a tendency to being controlling, um, difficulty, frustrate, uh, dif- difficulty tolerating things like frustration or stress, and a real tendency to rage. And they also have other patterns like manipulation, exploitation, coercion, lying, deceit, all of that. So it's a pretty toxic pattern. And when I say it's becoming the new normal, you know, listen, you know, this particular week, I'm in the UK with you, I'm reading your politics, and I'm thinking, you apparently, the United States is not the only country run by a kind of a raging narcissist. And so it seems to be endemic in our world leaders. And if it's endemic in the world leaders, it's what's all over the airwaves. And it's the people who make the news. And it's the people who share the news. And it's the people who run the companies. And the problem is, is when we see it in leadership, even if we don't see ourselves in that leadership, their attitudes, the tone they use, their incivility, it becomes the new normal. It normalizes the conduct as though any behavior is permissible as long as it makes a person successful. In the information about your new book, you've said narcissism, entitlement, and incivility are not only normalized, but also increasingly incentivized. Mm -hmm. Is that what you mean? Absolutely. I mean that what we reward it. It's not even more like we tolerate. It used to be we maybe tolerated it. Now we reward it. We assume that somebody who's really cocky and arrogant has the goods to back it up. What we don't understand is that somebody who's really arrogant and you know, bragging and showing off is likely deeply insecure because a person who really knows their stuff tends to keep their mouth shut until it's the appropriate time. And so I think that what we do is we think that, again, in the age of social media, we're bigger and louder are better. We really are societally getting into the habit of giving those people the attention, right? The person with a million Instagram followers is an influencer and they make lots of money. So wouldn't want everyone want to be them? And, and what it does then is like it's though if somebody is at all 
self-effacing or quiet or sticks to the shadows, you wonder how that poor person's ever going to survive in the new world order. Can you spot a narcissist just by looking through their Instagram feed? Ish. I mean, I think that yes and no. I mean, you want to be careful. Let's face it. Listen, I I don't even run my own social media. I have an amazing team that does it, but I post every day, but I rarely will you see an image of me on there. You'll see um, information that we as a team have brought together, information about narcissism, interesting quotes about it, interesting videos. And every so often I'll post an image of me someplace or talking about something or anything like that. But by and large, you know, I think what you'll see is lots of really heavily edited selfies. Um, The selfie in front of every single event in their life, from the Eiffel Tower to the breakfast cereal, and it's a constant need if it happens multiple times a day. I also think there's some little tricky things people don't know to look for, Gemma, like lots of passive-aggressive stuff or woe is me, like... Don't you hate it when your friends don't call you to join you at their party? Oh, I'm really looking forward to my Netflix night. That sort of victim-y stuff. Don't, don't be surprised if there's a little bit of narcissism lurking behind that, as though they're so validation-seeking. They want people to say, no, no, I'd love to spend an evening with you. So jealous I can't be there for the great Netflix drama. So it's a, it really is that there's more little hidden clues in a person's Instagram feed that can give you that flair for that, then you would think. So here's what I don't get, okay? So I, I've identified those similar posts when I've been browsing Instagram, but what I don't understand is why people follow. Like, how do they have so many followers? What, what is it that makes us want to follow that kind of person? I think there's a lot of things that, you know, that might pull for somebody being followable is the imagery they're posting, the message they're putting forth, um, the fame quotient. I think that, you know, the funny thing about social media is there's almost a strange implication that somehow you know the person or you're friends with the person. So somebody famous, I don't know, famous uh, football star, famous musician or something like that. They'll have millions and millions and millions and millions of followers. And I think that the followers, maybe they're, they're such a fan that they want to know when a concert's going to be or a soccer match is going to be played or something like that. So it becomes a source of information. But for all of us ordinary folks, why someone gets followed is it likely is imagery. It may very well be resonance. There may be sort of a cool factor or an it factor that I imagine every influencer out there is trying to distill. And sometimes it's outrageousness. I mean, it could be a sex appeal to the point where you're wondering, it's almost skirting the bounds of propriety. So it may be somebody who posts lots of very suggestive photos or, you know, that there's a promise of more to come. All of those things can be pulling for it. But I think, you know, as anybody who's working in the new media knows, a lot of it is consistency that people keep posting and posting and posting and posting. So obviously this is either a full-time job or it's something they spend most of their time on. I really want to talk more about the new book, but first I just have to address some of the comments we had on the last video uh, that we recorded last year. They were overwhelming and they were from people who had really suffered in relationships with narcissists. And then I came across this term, post-narcissistic stress disorder. Is this a real condition and, and what does it look like? It's funny, we're all struggling with the word. The the word I'm using more and more in my work and trying to do more consistent uh, empirical research on is narcissistic abuse. Mm. 
And so one could argue that I guess if somebody suffers narcissistic abuse, they could offer, they, they would experience some sort of post narcissistic stress disorder. It's an interesting term, but yeah, absolutely. There's a syndrome you rather consistently see of a person who survived a narcissistic relationship. And this, the people at the end of a narcissistic relationship or who are still in one report lots of self-doubt, second guessing, anxiety, depression, problems with sleep, problems with concentration, helplessness, hopelessness, feelings of worthlessness, feelings of being foolish, and a sense of how I don't know, understand how I got here. Sometimes people even say like, I don't even like who I've become. I'm not even the old me. And so it's almost like a loss of their prior identity. I'm actually developing a scale to formally um, address the, uh, the, the phenomenon of narcissistic abuse right now. And so it's a very real phenomenon, but it's obviously not post-traumatic stress disorder. The symptoms aren't at that level, though some people, if their narcissistic relationship was also accompanied by violence or other forms of significant abuse, may look like they have PTSD. If the, if the abuse didn't last long enough, it may not qualify for complex PTSD. So it's really kind of in its own space. And the biggest problem, Gemma, is most people don't get it. So when they try to explain it to someone else, they, the person, their friend will say, or even a therapist sometimes say, well, why don't you just explain it to them? And I'm like, there's nothing worse you could tell someone who's dealing with a narcissist than to explain it to them. Narcissists don't listen. They devalue. They disrespect. So there's no way they're ever going to listen to somebody trying to reason with them, which is why people who are in this sort of, as this person called a post-narcissistic stress syndrome, are so frustrated, helpless, um, confused. That's another thing we see a lot too. It's horrible. I mean, I cannot tell you how horrible this um, phenomenon is. And I really, again, devoted my career at this point to working with individuals who are going through this because I feel like they don't have enough advocates in the mental health field. On that point of living with or being in a relationship with a narcissist, is there a best way to handle a narcissist when they are trying to hurt you? Let's, Gemma, just for the sake of, you know, just to make it easier, let's take physical violence out of this because obviously that's its own space, right? So when they're trying to hurt you with their words, okay? I always tell people it's almost like one golden rule and it's the only golden rule you need. Don't engage with them. And by don't engage with them, I mean, don't, don't take their bait, don't defend yourself, don't personalize what they're saying. They are capable of saying such hateful, hurtful things and lashing out that there's no point in engaging with them. So the best way is to not remain serene, remain calm, step away if you can. Um, and, and if they just want to keep like throwing a whole series of words at you, just almost retreat into your own head. And realize that this person is just angry at the world and you're just part of the world. So they're angry at you too. And don't personalize it. And that's the key. And that's probably the only way to do it is to not engage with them. One lady who said she was married to a narcissist, she left a comment underneath the video we recorded last year. And she said that her husband twists everything she yeah. says. Is that a common trait? And if so, should she just take the same advice you just gave? So the twisting everything that you say is often falls under the larger rubric of something called gaslighting. And gaslighting is a denial of the reality of another person. And it is considered to be a form of emotional abuse. In her case, my guess is she's enduring a lot of gaslighting. And they do. Narcissistic people really do twist reality to suit themselves and reject everyone else's reality, or really doubt other people's reality. Same thing. 
what is so hard is that when you're under that much emotional abuse, that much invalidation, that much dehumanization all the time, it's very easy to lose touch with your own reality. You literally feel like you're going insane, which is why people who are going through narcissistic relationships, it becomes so important for them to be in therapy with a good therapist who understands narcissism so they can keep making sure that that person understands that your reality is still very real. This person can't take it away. So, but the problem is, Gemma, a lot of people, particularly women, often don't value their own reality. They often take on the reality that other people give them. And so as a result, they don't, um, somebody else can come along and if they're insistent enough, twist your reality. There, listen, there's, in, the, in the annals of psychological research, We've even seen it. We see it with Solomon Ash's early social psych studies that if enough people tell you an alternate reality, you will go along with it. You know, it's, it's, it's why many horrible things have happened in history. So there's no reason why it can't just happen in the confines of an individual relationship. So I'm intrigued by, by this. How, and I don't know whether there is an answer to it, how does a narcissist choose who to target mm-hmm. the way narcissists choose how to target it, it varies but one thing that they're you know they're, i can definitely ident- identify for you patterns you know, of what makes a person more vulnerable to it but in terms of what the narcissist targets number one they target someone who stick around long enough you know a lot of people like someone like me you come and talk to me and you're a narcissist i'm gonna actually step i'm literally gonna step away from the conversation i have got my whole list of excuses bathroom my kid needs to be picked up. My kids are old enough to drive. I still use it as an excuse, but I just need, I need to get myself out. And then they've lost me. I'm not going to go back. Most people have better manners than me. So they keep talking to them. Another thing narcissists do is they tell their sad tale of woe very early in a relationship. I was abused. I was traumatized. All these terrible things happened to me. I didn't get a fair start in life. Woe is me. Woe is me. Woe is me. And if they meet someone who's a rescuer, they may often say, oh, I want to rescue this person. They've had such a hard life. They deserve to be loved. Mm-mm. First of all, it makes you wonder what this person's boundaries are about, that they're making such big personal traumatic revelations to you before the coffee is served at the end of the meal. It really, it, it sometimes can often feel more like a manipulation. So they look for people who stick around, who listen, who buy their story, who they also look for people who they also value for some other reason. People who are incredibly beautiful, attractive, wealthy, have great bodies, powerful, have status, have some form of celebrity, something that makes them valuable. That's definitely something else that narcissists are drawn to as well. Does a narcissist ever feel sadness in and pain like the rest of us and if so what what would cause them to feel sadness i would argue that narcissists feel sadness and pain all the time because they're so insecure what everyone forgets about the narcissist because they're so combative because they're so rude because they're so entitled and grandiose and always seeming to gun for a fight everyone assumes they're really confident and feel great about themselves they don't they're insanely fragile So they constantly feel threatened by the world. That's why if you're with a narcissist and you have an accomplishment, they'll always say, oh, that's nothing, or who cares, or why do you always talk about yourself? They will minimize anything good that happens in other people's lives. Why is that? Because they're so insecure. Walking around the world that insecure all the time, that cannot be pleasant. So their sadness tends to come out as irritability, 
victimhood, anger, and rage. It doesn't look like what we would traditionally term sort of weeping, sad, withdrawn sadness. Maybe the victimhood looks a little bit like that, but it's more that they're angry at the world. Oh, nothing's ever, ever fair. Nothing ever goes my way. You know, versus I'm so disappointed that this didn't turn out my way. How am I going to get over this? You see the difference? One is blaming the world. The other is taking ownership of the feelings that that person has. Narcissists can't take ownership. There was a viewer of our last episode uh, who, rather than telling me he'd been affected by a narcissist, he said, I'm a narcissist. What should I do? Is there no hope for me? And he said, I'm letting a lot of people down and I know I should feel something. Now, I want to just remind all viewers and listeners that this podcast should not be considered a means of receiving personal, clinical, or medical advice. However, Dr. Ramani, if anyone out there listening thinks they might be a narcissist, Mm -hmm. can they get help? Here's what's tricky. If somebody is narcissistic, but, you know, and there's more and more content out there about it, starting to say, this is me. I've had many clients to say, you know what? I actually don't care about other people's feelings. I don't care what they have to, they don't care anything about them but I actually would love to be in a normal relationship. How do I make myself care? I have to say that a narcissist who really wants to commit to this kind of work, it's going to be very hard work, like almost like scaling a, 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 sheer, a sheer face of a mountain. And the reason is this is because they have to be on it every single day. Every single day they need to be paying attention, like really caring what the other person is saying, which for them is exhausting because at some inherent level, they don't care. Part of the work in therapy then also becomes, how do they do the deep dive into the core of their own insecurity? Listen, for many people who are narcissistic, neglect, trauma, or abuse can be in their history. And it may require some unpacking of that. We can't unring those bells of trauma, but we can definitely assign different meaning to them. That kind of work can be incredibly important for somebody who has that background and is narcissistic. I think that a lot of it becomes very self-reflective. Can you imagine how this person felt when you said that? Most narcissists I've worked with in therapy, and I've worked with a lot, will say, Yeah, I get that. I can see why that hurt them. But more often than not, what they'll tell me, Gemma, is, and I can't stop myself in the moment. What they have a hard time getting their their heads around is that they want to react the way they want and they want to apologize. And it's hard for them to get the idea that that doesn't work for most people. You can't keep making messes and thinking cleaning it up is enough. Once you slap someone across the face, even if you apologize, the slap still stings. So I would say that for a person who is narcissistic, it would mean very long-term therapy with a very compassionate, consistent therapist who's willing to get in there with them. But it's not easy because many times narcissistic people are very contemptuous of the therapist. They're very contemptuous of close relationships. It's exhausting for the therapist. It's exhausting for everyone around the narcissist. And it's also heartbreaking for the narcissist who actually may want to make change. It's a slow burn. Sometimes narcissists can make enough change that it might be enough for a spouse or enough for someone else. Is it probably at the level of a healthy functioning person in a relationship? Probably not. If more and more of us are becoming narcissists and it's becoming the new normal, 
are we learning this behavior? It's not that we're suddenly, loads of us are being born narcissists. It's a learned behavior. Is that right? What, but when you say it like that, we say more and more of us are becoming narcissists. That's not the case. It's not like someone at 30 years old is going to get to be a nice person and then wake up one day and start becoming more narcissistic. It doesn't work that way. This is a very developmental arc that happens over the lifespan. It has a lot to do with attachment. It has to do with early relationships. It has to do with how rewards were given in their household. It has to do with how emotion was managed in their household. It has a little bit to do with inborn temperament, how that child came into the world. It has to do with what we value in society. The fact is, in one family system, you can have one deeply narcissistic sibling and other siblings who are incredibly healthy and kind. So even within the same family, things can go differently. And that's where that temperament piece matters. What is happening though is, uh, this is my hypothesis. Listen, I'm not, you know, this is my, one woman's hypothesis based on the read of the literature and everything. And something I get into in depth in the book is this idea that people, um, the way we're raising our kids, they're simultaneously being overindulged. Here's an iPad. Here's this. You can do this. Go get the soccer trophy. Go get the prize at school. Go get to the best university. You know, do ballet. Excel, excel, excel. But at the same time, those children who are almost being suffocated or helicoptered by their parents are not getting their emotional needs met. Nobody, everybody wants to hear about them getting top marks in school or doing well in whatever they do or being good, obedient kids or giving their parents narcissistic supply. But is anyone really sitting with these kids and saying, how are you feeling? And can you share that feeling with me? And letting their children be comfortable with emotion. This is something we're really lacking in our societies, especially with boys. Boys are not given this opportunity. It's a lot of contempt for emotion in boys and men. Until we can get past that, we are going to keep generating more and more narcissists. And then you put that against things like technology and how abruptly we communicate and things like the erosion of the idea of the extended family and the tribe and people caring about each other, polarized political discourse, social media. I mean, it's a Petri dish. Somebody already has those narcissistic tendencies. The conditions, the way the world is now is almost guaranteeing that, 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 that the, the, the uh, fire will burn and burn big. Okay, so it's not necessarily so many more narcissists exist. It's that we're generating narcissistic behavior and normalizing it in yeah. wider society. So back to the brand new book. Now, um, you have said, quote, it's time for a wake-up call. It's time to stem the tide of narcissism, entitlement, and antagonism and take our lives back. Mm -hmm. So what steps can we begin to do to take our lives back? I would say, number one, stop engaging with them. Stop engaging, stop defending, stop personalizing. I don't know a single person I work with. Obviously, my clients, I'm biased, but even in my, amongst my friends, I don't know one who doesn't have at least one significant narcissist in their life. And so you can come up with more realistic te techniques. The bottom line is if you maintain realistic expectations and radical acceptance, you can really set boundaries that are very solid. And then, and then the, you can almost keep the narcissist at bay. doesn't mean they're not going to make your life difficult. It doesn't mean that they're not an annoyance. All those things are in place. But A, you can keep better boundaries or hopefully not in, get into the relationships in the first place. The second thing I tell people is don't just because they're playing a really dirty ground game doesn't mean you have to do it too. That I tell people, you do you, you get it right. And they'll say, but they're saying all these terrible things. I said, so what? 
just because they're saying terrible things, there's no win here because you say them too. If you can let it go and not get in the mud with them, the best thing that happens is you don't get any mud on you. And in my new book, I talk about this concept of tend your own garden. Everybody is so concerned with what the narcissists are getting away with. I tell people, tend to your own little patch of the world. You know, you clean up your own stuff and you do your own thing. You, um, you, you plant your seeds, you tend your garden, you water it, you weed it. And don't worry if the narcissist throws some trash in your garden, pick it up, throw it out. If we, all of us who are good, solid, compassionate people keep tending to our own patches of garden, before you know it, we can have a, a rather interlinked sort of space in the world that is a lot healthier and not characterized by as much narcissism. I also tell people, turn off the news from time to time. Get away from your social media feed. It's a, it can be a very polarized space. It can be very unidimensional. It can make us think that the world is a far more toxic place than it really is. Next, it's what I call the 90-10 approach to life. Right now, I guarantee that many of you out there listening to this, you give 90% of your effort and energy to the most narcissistic, toxic people in your life, giving only 10% to the good, kind people in your life. Why? Because those good, kind people are going to do it right by you, whether you give them 10%, 1%, they're just good people. But we give so much effort to the toxic people because we're all caught in this game of trying to please them, trying them to win them over, like we're trying to win over an unwinnable parent. Flip the mask. Give 90% to the good people in your life. Just give 10%. Throw crumbs to the narcissists, the bullies, and the toxic people. It's such a better use of resource because now all the good people then will be giving to each other. Next, stop giving second chances. I'm not a fan of second chances, which makes me sound really harsh, but second chances is how we enable narcissists, and it's how they've already gotten so much power. When somebody behaves in a really unacceptable way, they've just shown you what they're capable of. Judge them on that basis. It'll save you a lot of heartache down the road. If someone has a parent or a sibling who is pretty narcissistic, and they're thinking, they're listening to this now, and they're thinking, how do I give them 10%? Because they're quite they're quite prevalent in their lives and and how do you do that with a mother or father suddenly go a bit cold with them because you can do it without them necessarily knowing it remember narcissists aren't listening to you in the first place so the, all this extra effort you're expending to actually listen to their idiotic dull boring story is an utter waste of time you could be making a grocery list you could be working a math problem in your head and you're just not wow interesting amazing wow the, that's absolutely amazing. Gosh, oh God, you are amazing. Just if you literally could make a little talking box that could throw that back at them, they'd be content. They would be content and understand what they, you know what they want. And I think a lot of people say, I don't want to play the game by their rules. Well, I tell most people, you've been playing the game by their rules for decades. So why all of a sudden now do you want to change it? Again, you're not going to change the game with narcissists. It's always the key element. They don't change. If you're armed with that knowledge that they don't change, now you, especially with a parent, you don't have to give them the best of yourself. Figure out what the bare minimum you need to do is and do it. You don't have to leave their lives, but while you're there, stop giving over so much of yourself. And, and then set a timer. You go over there, going to be a dinner, set a timer for two hours. The timer goes off, say, pretend it's your phone ring. Oh, I got an emergency. I got to run. Get out. Get out before it gets too toxic. Too many people with narcissists stay at the table for too long. In the title of your book, you use the word incivility yeah. as well. Now, 
What aspects of modern life were you thinking of when you decided to use the word incivility? Where it really came from, and you know, a lot of the inspiration for this, obviously, after the 2016 election in the United States, um, obviously, 50, a little over, little under, little under 50% of Americans were happy with the outcome. And 50% were not only unhappy, they were scared and upset and concerned. Families got pulled apart. I had never seen, none of us as therapists had ever seen such an influx of patients into our office at the same time. It was it was almost unprecedented. Like you would see this only after like a natural disaster or something. And it was, it was difficult because like I said, out there, I live in Los Angeles. So obviously in Los Angeles was a city where most people weren't happy with the outcome. It has nothing to do with a person's actual politics. But when I saw that, one of the most difficult things during that entire campaign season in the United States and after the election was how cruel the political discourse had become. It was about bullying. It was about insulting. It was about attacking. It was about making horrible statements about entire groups of people, entire immigrant groups, entire genders, people with disabilities. Like no group was sacred. And that discourse has become normalized as though somehow it's almost viewed as a sign of strength to speak in a horrifying, rude, dismissive way of other people. It's like dropping poison in a well. People are going to get sick. You, it's not an appropriate way to talk. There's reasons we teach children from a very young age how to be civil with each other. It's probably one of the first lessons they learn in their first day of nursery or preschool or kindergarten. You need to use nice tone. You have to speak in a nice word. If a child in school spoke the way the president of the United States spoke, they would be expelled from school. So why is it okay for the leader of a country? And listen, British politics are no better. You know, it's person after person who are in, in the houses of parliament in the UK and the houses of parliament all over the world that speak in ways that wouldn't be acceptable in a child in kindergarten, but somehow are acceptable in world leaders. That's what and, I meant. And people speaking on all political sides as well. Yeah, all sides. It's, not, it's all sides. It's not even, like I said, this isn't just one side is right, one side is wrong. Everybody is doing this. Everybody. And to me, that incivility, whether it's a world leader saying inappropriate things or somebody screaming at somebody else because they took their parking spot in a car park or in a parking lot, the incivility is everywhere. So two final questions. Mm -hmm. I know you've got to go. Firstly, you talked about very public attacks and rhetoric and politics there. Social media played a major role in that and still does. What would your top tips be for dealing with aggressors on social media? So if you're on Twitter and someone really wants a row with you, mm -hmm. what's your tactic? Block them. It's block them. And what if they get angry that you blocked them? Well, that you shouldn't even be able to see it anymore because now that you've blocked them. Do you understand what I'm saying? I think people, I don't see the point in engaging with this. It, it, once again, you're doing exactly what I said not to. You're defending yourself against narcissists because most internet trolls are narcissists. I don't think I've ever met one who's not, okay? So if we know that the internet trolls, almost without exception, are narcissistic and then think it's appropriate to have this kind of discourse in public, there's no point in the, in the exchange. You can, have any, you can have the most difficult conversation in the world in a civil manner. And if a person can't find that capacity for civility, they're not worth engaging with. It's not good for your health. So I'd say block them. I think the reason I asked you, what if they get angry if you block them, is because I imagined their hordes of followers would come after you 
because they would have discovered you blocked them. And then you've got a whole other row with all these followers of the narcissist. But I guess you'd block them too. Block them too. I mean, the only way, it's like any, you want to stop a fire, you, you kill its air supply. You want to stop a person, you kill its air supply. And what's their air supply? It's conflict, contempt, and contention. I don't play like that. Anybody take, I, I block it. You want to, I've had numerous people ask me very difficult questions in a very civil manner. I am more than happy to have that conversation with them. But the minute they make it an attack, I'm done. I don't have time. Life's too short. And my mental health is too, too precious. And one final question. If there, if there is a, a single thing that a parent can do to help prevent their child from becoming selfish and entitled growing up in this world, what would that one thing be? To not be selfish and entitled themselves, number one. And number two, to teach them empathy prior to the age of seven or eight. And that means really teaching it to them. What, instead of just putting an iPad or a movie in front of them, watch the movie with them. And when there's a moment where empathy is needed, one character is hurt by another, stop the movie and say, how do you think he feels? So instead of children just blindly consuming media, it can actually become a place of teaching empathy. Play board games with them. Then they understand things like frustration and disappointment. But more than anything, what a parent needs to do is nurture their child's emotional world and emotional vocabulary. That is where we learn that when we're children. That is not something you can learn when you're 35. You need to learn it when you're five. And parents need to be comfortable with their own emotions before they can do it for a child. So to every father out there, get your emotional house in order so you can teach a man what it really is to be a man, not to be strong and be able to, to, to make lots of money or lift heavy things, but to be comfortable and vulnerable with your own emotions and for mothers to be doing the same and for fathers to be doing this for their daughters and mothers for their sons. This is absolutely critical. And until we can get more comfortable with our emotions and teach children to be genuinely secure people, that they're not the measure of whether they got a soccer goal or whether they got all good marks in school or whether they're pretty or whether they can spin on their toes or got a trophy, but rather that every child is more than enough and is loved for being who they are, we're going to continue seeing this. And that's all a parent needs to do. Love their child fully, deeply, and authentically. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, Dr. Ramani. I know that my viewers and listeners really value your insights hugely. Um, remind us where we can follow you on social media. You can follow me on all social media at Dr. Ramani, D-O-C-T-O-R-R-A-M-A-N-I. My website is drramani.com. It's D-O-C-T-O-R dash r-a-m-a-n-i.com and my new book which releases in a matter of weeks is available for amazon on pre-order at and it's it, at any amazon barnes and noble you can even ask your local bookseller to stock it and it's called don't you know who i am how to stay sane in an era of narcissism entitlement and incivility and then my other book is called should i stay or should i go surviving a relationship with a narcissist and that's already available you read those two books you will be the narcissism Jedi warrior. They'll never come near you again. So this episode is going to release um, towards the end of September. So will the new book be on sale then? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. 
there might be a little bit of a, mm, a little hiccup in the UK because it has to get over the sea, but I'm, I'm going to start getting my advanced copies as soon as next week. So which means Amazon warehouses will start getting them. Yeah. Brilliant. And Health Hackers listeners and viewers, I'm going to put links to where you can get hold of Dr. Ramley's book um, in the summary text beneath this. Thank you so much, Dr. Ramley. Thank you so much, Gemma. Take it's care. always such a pleasure.